You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So as Steve said, today I am in, talking in the second week of our series called Generous Church. What does it mean to live as a gathered community and on our own as more generously than we currently might do? And so today I'm talking about living simply. How does living more simply enable us to live more generously? And when I first started thinking about this, I started thinking about this book. This is a photo of the cover of The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. Is anyone read this book my wife is holding her hand up a few others as well yeah um for the uninitiated Marie Kondo is according to her website an organizing consultant which let's face it is not a real job is it um on her Wikipedia page, it says this, Kondo says that she has been interested in organising since childhood. In junior school, Kondo ran into the classroom to tidy up bookshelves while her classmates were playing in physical education class, which makes me think that we would not be friends. It also says she founded her organising consultancy when she was 19 years old and at university. When I was 19 years old and at university, I lived in a university halls, kind of hall of residence, a tiny room, and there were days when I'd have to open the door and jump to my bed because there was no space on the floor in front of me to put my feet down. So I don't know if we'd get on all that well. But anyway, a few years later, Marie Kondo decided to write these helpful ideas down, and this book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, was born. It has gone on to sell tens of millions of copies worldwide, mainly, I think, to people like my sister, who already has a pathological love of organisation. I don't think anyone like me has even considered opening this book over the last decade or so. Anyway, my sister read this and she told me that one of the main ideas in this book is the idea about sparking joy. Has anyone heard of this before? The idea is, yeah, most people, the idea is that you go around your house and you pick up objects and you say, does this spark joy? And if the answer is no, then you throw it away. And that is how you declutter your life. I wonder if I could take the same approach to my work. Does this COVID risk assessment spark joy? And if not, throw it away. But unfortunately, we can't get away with that. So my sister says, you look at everything and you say, does this spark joy? And that is why her house is immaculately organized. But there is one place where my sister does not follow her own spark joy logic, and that is in my parents' attic. Now, my parents have lived in the same house for about 40 years, and like anybody who's lived in a house for 40 years, they've accumulated a load of stuff, probably too much stuff, for that house. And so what they do is they stick stuff in the attic out the way, and what that's meant is that over four decades, there's been quite a lot of stuff put into that attic. And now, over the last couple of years, they've decided they need to clear the attic. 
Now, for my sister, obviously, this is like some kind of dream job. And so every time that we go back to my parents, she's originally or immediately trying to drag me up into the attic to sort out some of my stuff. But this, as I said, is the place where she does not spark joy. Because in one corner, you have my sister and my mother trying to keep hold of everything and reading through exercise books from primary school. Oh, look at that story that Nath wrote about you when you were six years old. We can't throw that away. And then in the other corner, you've got me and my dad going, chuck it, here's another recycling bag, here's a bin bag, chuck it away. But the one thing, the one exception to this is my collection of NMEs. Now, for anyone under the age of 30 here, I should explain what this is. It's the cover of a music magazine, the New Musical Express. It's the thing that people used to do in the olden days. You'd buy these things, they were called magazines, and then you'd read stuff on actual paper, not on a screen. So I was obsessed with the NME when I was a teenager, and from about, I reckon about 1994, until I went to university about five years later, I had every single copy of the NME. I bought it every week. I had a newspaper round. I would go to the newsagent, pick up my papers for the day to deliver to everybody else. And on a Wednesday, I'd buy the NME. And then I would spend Wednesday morning, instead of delivering papers, reading the NME. I wonder if anybody ever realized that for about five years, their newspaper was delivered late on a Wednesday. But anyway, I was obsessed with this. And then when I finished reading it, I would keep it in a pristine, organized manner, unlike anything else in my life. So it's all now in my parents' attic. Five years worth of copies every single week. And if they throw everything else out from that attic, every single story that I wrote about my sister when I was six years old, I do not want to get rid of these NMEs. Now, I think that when we talk about living simply, we all have areas where we're really happy to live simply and areas where we struggle more. This is a photo of an old T-shirt of mine, which I bought in 2007. I know I bought it in 2007 because there are lots of pictures of me at the 2007 Rugby World Cup wearing it. And in 2008, it must have been, the beginning of that year, I was in a conversation with a guy that I worked with at the time who was obsessed with buying clothes. It was a Monday morning, we were chatting about what we'd done on the weekend, and he said that he'd bought a new pair of jeans and they cost £300. Now, at that point, I literally didn't even know it was possible to spend £300 on a pair of jeans. I assumed they must have been made out of gold. We then got into a conversation about how much money we spent on clothes, and I realised as part of that conversation that in the whole of 2007, I had bought one t-shirt for nine pounds when I started to do a bit more exercise and realized I didn't quite have enough t-shirts to go running in. So when Steve put up that tweet that somebody said in response to living simply, so how is your wardrobe, Steve? I think, particularly back in 2007-ish, I think I'd be totally fine answering that really well. Because if someone said to me, the best way to live simply and enable you to live more generously is to cut down on the amount of clothes that you buy, well, I'd be able to say, great, no problem, sign me up. But if somebody said, 
the best way to live simply and enable you to live more generously is not to spend any money on any new fancy tech things, then I'd find that a lot more difficult. The battery isn't particularly great on this laptop, and so a few weeks ago, I took it back to the Apple shop. And while I was there, the guy said, oh, it's gonna be about 20 minutes until we can see you, but sit over there. And he points to this section of the shop where it's got like all of the new MacBook Pros and all of the new Apple computers. And it's basically like saying, oh, this computer's actually totally fine. You just need like, it's a bit of a problem with the battery. But instead of just waiting for 20 minutes, why didn't you spend 2,000 pounds on something else? Fortunately, I didn't, but we are all different, aren't we? We all respond to the idea of living simply in different ways. We all have different trigger points for this, don't we? And I think, well, that's what church is, isn't it? We're not meant to be a club of sameness. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different levels of affluence. We have different opinions, different responses to all of these things, and that is a great thing. But I wonder if there are a few overarching lessons that we can learn from these verses that Joe read to us. They're from Mark's account of Jesus's life from chapter six. Jesus has called 12 people to follow him and now he's sending them out to tell other people about him. So he gathers them together to tell them about the trip they're going on. And verses eight and nine say this, these were his instructions, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals but not an extra shirt. By the way, if anyone ever says to you that there are no contradictions uh, in the Bible, um, this is a good example of where the Bible isn't actually inerrant. This same story is told in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and in Luke's account of Jesus' life. So in Mark it says this, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. But in Luke it says, he, take the, he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. And in Matthew it says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you, no bag for the journey or extra cert or sandals, or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. You'll have spotted the staff-sized difference there in the story. Now, obviously this doesn't actually matter. These are people remembering accounts of what happened, and that's why some of them think there might have been a staff and some others think that there might not have been a staff. This is humanity writing down stories. A human response to this, but what it isn't is inerrant. Anyway, back to the story. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. If ever there was a command to live simply, this is it, isn't it? As I said earlier this year, Hull are joining us. And over the last year or so, I've been up there a few times on a Sunday morning to go and preach. There are no trains that get you in early enough into Hull on a Sunday morning. So when I go up there, I have to go up there on a Saturday. I go up on a Saturday evening and I stay in the Hull City Centre Travel Lodge every time that I go up there. And I used to go away quite a lot overnight with work. And I feel like I'm a bit of an expert in packing an overnight bag. I have the right size suitcase, the right sized bag which fits inside 
inside the suitcase so that when you get there and you want to go out, you haven't got to take your suitcase with you. That bag has got all the requisite chargers in it. It's got a Kindle charger ready to go. It's got a phone charger ready to go. It's got loads of other bits and pieces, including an HDMI lead, because when you go away, you normally stay in hotels that don't have Sky Sports on the telly, and that means you can plug your laptop in and watch some sport. I am ready to go. I have got the overnight bag nailed but it has to be said it is a bit of a more elaborate setup than what the disciples had they were told to take nothing except that staff no bread no bag no money wear sandals but not an extra shoe why did jesus say this why were they told to do this surely it would have been easier for them if they just had a bit of cash on them just in case this reminded me of when I was a teenager and we were first allowed to go to Cardiff on the bus, me and my mates. And when we were getting there on the bus, my mate Justin told us that his mother had sellotaped a pound note into the inside of the sole of his trainer just in case we got mugged so that he could get home which obviously meant that we just took the mick out of him because of that the whole day long but the other funny thing is that there were three of us who went and Justin played number eight for the school rugby the other two of us were in the backs Justin was about a foot taller and about three stone heavier than the rest of us if anyone was going to get mugged and need a fiver to get home it wasn't my mate Justin but anyway I think there are a few reasons why Jesus sends them out traveling quite so lightly. The first is that Jesus didn't tell them to take nothing so that everyone would think, wow, these disciples, aren't they amazing? They're so selfless, so humble, they don't take anything with them. That wasn't what it was about at all. It was so that the disciples would have no other option than to rely on the hospitality of others. In a couple of weeks' time, Dave Parr's going to talk about how we receive generosity as part of this series. So I won't talk about this too much this morning, but all I will say is that I don't know about you, but I find it sometimes much easier to give hospitality, much easier to be generous, than I find it to receive hospitality, to receive generosity. Anyone else find that sometimes? So what Jesus is doing here is he's sending the disciples out without the means to rely on themselves. So that they have to rely on others. They have to accept hospitality and the generosity of others. Also, I think Jesus is telling them to go out like this so they're not muddying the waters. They're keeping the gospel story simple. This way, they're going to new people. And they're saying, hey, here's this story about this guy called Jesus. He's the son of God. And this is how we should live. Come join us. We're going to change the world. We're living a different way. We're telling a different story. But the fact that they haven't got anything with them shows them that Jesus hasn't made them rich. Following Jesus hasn't made them powerful. Following Jesus hasn't even made them secure. So if people are going to follow them, they're going to follow for the right reasons. Compare this to some of those prosperity gospel stories that you hear, some of those churches that you hear about. The churches which say, follow Jesus and you'll become rich. Follow Jesus and all your troubles will go away. Follow Jesus and you will be secure. Jesus' first followers were sent out to make sure that nobody made that mistake. But bigger than that, 
I think is a really important message for us all here. Basically, Jesus' followers were told not to take with them stuff that would be baggage. Baggage that would slow them down, stop them from doing their job of inviting people to join them, of inviting people into this new way of living. Baggage that would slow down their opportunities to share this life-giving story with people. And it got me thinking, what's the baggage that's stopping me from living out this mission? As a church, what's the baggage which is stopping us from living out our mission? Lots of you will have done Being Human, our four-week introduction to the church and its theology. And we always start week one by telling this story about some wild geese. The story goes that there were some geese. They had been wild geese, and now they lived in a farm. And in this farm, there was plenty of food there, and the walls were high, and they were secure. So they were pretty happy there. And then one day, a philosopher goose rose among them. He would stand on... Uh, the stones a little bit above them and he would say we were made for more than this we are wild geese our ancestors flew we are called to fly and the people the, the other geese there they love to listen to this story love to hear the stories about their ancestors from this philosopher goose and so eventually they'd come along kind of every week once a week maybe on a sunday morning at like 11 o'clock or something to hear stories from the one wise philosopher goose and then eventually they started to you know write some songs and some poetry to kind of like sing together while they were listening to this philosopher goose but the thing is Despite all the great stories, at no point did the geese ever fly. At no point did they leave the farm. Because the food was good and the walls were high. What's the baggage which stops us from flying? What is it that we need to lay down where do we need to live more simply so that we can live more generously so that we can live out our mission last week i met a friend for coffee and he was reading a book called the ruthless elimination of harry we got chatting about it and i made some joke about how i quite liked harry i enjoyed doing everything at 100 mile an hour and actually i would like not to eliminate harry but actually for some other people to have a bit more harry thanks very much but afterwards i was reflecting on this because i was thinking about this phenomenon it's a picture of a whatsapp message and it's the two blue ticks that you get at the end of a WhatsApp message. Anybody shout out, what does the two blue ticks mean? It means it's been read. In 2014, WhatsApp brought in a new update. One tick at the end of a message meant that you tried to send the message, but it hadn't been delivered yet. Two ticks meant the message had been delivered to the person that you wanted to send it to. And then the ticks move from gray to blue when it had been red. It sounds like a really small thing. 
Then they brought in another update, which meant that you could see if somebody was online, and you could see the last time that they had been online, which means that if the ticks hadn't gone blue and you knew that they were online after you'd sent that message, that they were probably ignoring you. Now, this sounds like a really small thing, but one of the consequences of this has been the pressure that people find to respond to everything immediately. And it's not just WhatsApp, is it? I think ever since anyone's got a phone with text messages on, this has been getting worse. There's been an ever-growing pressure to always be available, to always respond to everything immediately. Does anyone else find this? You get a message late at night, and then you'll get another message the morning after saying, hey, did you see that message I sent to you? And the problem I have is that I do put a bit of pressure on myself to reply to these messages really quickly, which I think probably makes the problem worse, because then when you don't get a reply from me, you think, oh, Nathan normally replies pretty quickly. What's, what's happening there? What's, what's gone wrong there? And then it gets worse. Even though I know this, and even though I feel this pressure, I do exactly the same thing. I send a message, I see the blue ticks, and I think, come on, I know you've read it. Why haven't you replied yet? Get on with it. Immediate reactions, immediate responses, the pressure to always be doing something, to always be available. Sometimes I wonder if a way in which we could live more simply is just to take a step back and cut everyone a bit of slack. I have a friend who takes Fridays off work and on a Thursday night when he gets home he turns his phone off and he puts it in a box and he puts the box in a drawer and then he doesn't turn his phone back on until Saturday morning every single week. I don't think that's the answer for me. Like I said at the beginning, a healthy approach to living simply will look different for every one of us, but maybe not immediately and always being available all the time might help us to live a bit more simply. And I think we could probably take that a step further. Maybe we need to look at the root of that. Why do we feel the need to respond immediately? Is it because we're people pleasers? We're worried that if we don't, people won't like us. Is it born out of insecurity? Maybe we need to take some time to reflect on this, to explore the reasons why we just can't let that message sit there for a couple of extra hours. Or maybe sometimes the things that stop us living simply are good things. I don't know if any of you listened to Rob Bell's podcast, but on one of the really early episodes, he told a story about a fundraising dinner that he went to that a friend of his had put on. It was a charity that his friend ran, and they were doing a big fundraiser, and he said, oh, Robert, really great if you came to this. We've got a table for you, and you know, your wife can have a seat, and all this kind of stuff. And so he said, great. So he went along to it, because his, you know, his, his mate's doing a good thing. The charity's trying to change the world. They're doing useful things, you know? And so he goes along, and they get a babysitter for their kids, and he's sitting there, and it's a lovely evening, a lovely event. Everything's going really well. They're raising loads of money for this worthy charity. And he said he just sat there, and he thought, what am I doing here? This is a good thing. It's a good charity, raising money for a good thing. He said, but it's not my thing. It's not a great thing. 
And he said he realized that he hadn't really seen his wife that week. And they got a babysitter, and he was super busy doing a million other things. And on the one night that he could have actually spent a bit more time, actually just going out for a meal with his wife, he was doing another thing, and a thing that wasn't his thing. And that story really resonated with me. Because I am the kind of person who says yes to everything, then gets to the end of a week and is shattered and thinks, oh man, I wish I wasn't so tired, I wish I hadn't done so much stuff. It really did force me. I remember it really clearly. I went for a run, I was running down the South Bank and I listened to it. And I ran back thinking, what are the good things in my life that are taking me away from the great things? What are the things that I'm doing that are fine, they're good things, but because I'm doing all of these things, I'm not able to focus on the great thing. Sometimes, to live simply, to live generously, sometimes I need to say no to something. Or maybe our response is to look at how we live more sustainably. Here's a quote from Elizabeth Ann Seton. Live simply that others might simply live. There's a big link to generosity here, isn't there? Living sustainably means that we are being generous to the whole world. Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's campaigning for more structural change. Over the last couple of years, I've read loads of articles, listened to loads of podcasts, spoken to loads of people about the shift and the change in work-life balance that working from home and lockdown and COVID and all that kind of stuff has brought upon us. People pushing for a four-day week and a three-day weekend. And one of the ideas which always really grabs me is the idea of a universal basic income, which is a standard amount of money that everyone gets given, regardless of what job you do. It would mean that everybody could afford a decent standard of life, and it would allow people to take more chances, create more art, live more freely, maybe live more simply. Maybe your response to this is to campaign for some kind of structural change as well as personal change. There's also a financial link here, isn't there? If we cut down on the stuff that we buy, we'll free up some money to allow ourselves to be more generous to others. And that approach is great if that's the financial position that we're in. But for some of us in our community in this room, that isn't a luxury that's available to us. We already live pretty simply, financially, out of necessity, not out of choice. And this means that it's even better when those who can afford to live more generously do so, doesn't it? Because we're all in this together. But there's definitely more to this than just money. Living a simple life definitely isn't only related to money, is it? If we cut down on the amount of stuff we do that gives us a few more hours in the day to be able to respond to people, to do so in a way that doesn't feel like a pressure, more time to sit with our friends when they need us, more time to invest in the relationships which matter, when Louise was pregnant with our first daughter, Serin, 
I had a job that was kind of out in Hammersmith. It was an hour and a bit's journey, and it was really long hours, and I wasn't really around all that much. And I was talking to a mate of mine about how he coped with having small kids and a busy job. He was working in London and living outside of London, and it was loads of travel for him. And he said, look, I know that I can't be there all the time, but when I am there, I know I've got to be present. So when I am spending time with my kids, when I'm not away with work, Try and switch off from everything else. Don't have your phone out. Be present. And I wonder if living simply allows us to be present more often. So as I end, let's go back to that question from earlier. What's the baggage that's stopping me from living out my mission? What's your baggage? What's your 21st century equivalent of the money, the bag, the bread, the things to leave behind? What's stopping you from living generously? Is it material things? Is it that you can't live simply because you need to be busy all the time because you need to be validated by others? Is it that you're doing too many good things so there isn't enough time for the great? I'm going to invite Gareth and Ellie back up. But as we do this, let's reflect on this a bit. Let's start to think about how we might respond to this question. What is the baggage that's stopping me from living out my mission? Let's pray together before I hand over to the guys. In the same way that the disciples lived simply, so did Jesus. Richard Swenson wrote, Jesus was born with nothing, lived with little, and died with nothing. His simplicity was not accidental. Jesus could have chosen any standard, yet he chose to live simply. God, help us to choose simplicity however that may look to each of us. And help us to use the resources that we gain through simple living to be generous to each other, to live practically day by day as a better example of you, our always generous God. Amen.